Rescued is a podcast of conversations with rescuers and those who've been rescued. It's about the lessons we learn about ourselves, the places we go and why, without judgment, to help us have better adventures, manage risk and deal with the unexpected. We all know the importance of having solid first aid skills when we head off into the bush. A good remote area first aid course not only gives us the technical know-how of what to do in an emergency, but a big part of it is giving us the confidence to step in and act when someone suffers an injury. However, there's something that first aid courses can't really prepare us for that can leave us feeling vulnerable, especially when travelling solo. In this episode, I hear from experienced bushwalker, cross-country skier, runner and all-round adventure traveller Owen on what happened on day 24 of the 650km Australian Alps walking trail when he found himself alone and pushing the SOS button. Tell me a little bit about your earliest memories of time in the bush and specifically the Australian Alps. My interest in the Alps started back in the primary school days. I suppose the very first trip was I was asked to go skiing with a, a schoolmate from primary school and they took me up to Mount Buller for the day. Up until then, all our holidays had been sort of like beach holidays as a family and to go to the mountains was just something totally foreign to me. So it was um, very special and it was weird weather. It started off nice in the morning and then it fogged in. And that was the most beautiful part of the day was when the, the fog rolled in and the snow gums were just disappearing in and out of the fog. And um, I'd never skied before, but I managed to ski a little bit down this slope and I pulled up when the, when the fog rolled across. And uh, and out of, you know, in these ski villages, they have like music playing over the <laughs> sound system. I first heard this um, song, Sounds of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. And it was just such a fitting moment to hear that song for the first time and to be sort of standing on the side of this mountain yeah. with the fog rolling across and just the silhouettes of the snow gums disappearing in and out of the fog was just something I've never experienced and it's stayed with me ever since. I mean, it's interesting you say the sounds of silence because that's something that's always struck me of when there's snow on the ground, unless there's a strong wind up in those alpine areas. Yeah, it's exactly. Just the quietness. Indeed. And can you remember how you felt like a as a young child, what you were thinking at the time and feeling? I didn't feel frightened by it at all, even though it was something totally I'd, I'd never sort of experienced. But I suppose I'd you know, seen foggy mornings in Melbourne and things like that where we grew up. It was just, just so beautiful. <laughs> you know, that was the thing that struck me. I think it was just the... You know, I was away from my friends at that moment and just on my own and just um, just marvelling at the, the the beauty of the, the mountains and the snow gums. Yeah, those sort of twisted trunks and you know, branches that are leaning you know, away from the wind and <laughs> it's just something that you know, I've never seen anything like it. And describe what happens when the gum gets wet. Yeah, well, it gets, a you know, it gets wet and it just gets a sheen to it. It's a... You know, the, the colours really get become more intense when, when it's wet, the pinks and you know, greens and olive green, uh, greys and things like that just you know, take on a different characteristic when they're wet, yeah. Talk to me about painting and how that comes with you, you know, when you go to the bush. Like is being a painter and an artist and seeing things, you know, seeing colours like that, is that does that influence your time in the bush, do you think? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Painting and my hiking really go hand in hand. Now, I'm always looking at the landscape. I, I developed an interest in, in art in year 11 and 12 at high school, um, and that's as much sort of formal training that I had in painting. But um, 
I don't know, when I wander around, I'm looking at colours, I'm looking at the way the ridge lines sort of fall away. You know, they start off above the tree line, you see them sort of disappear down into the mountain ash and alpine ash. And, yeah, you just sort of bit by bit collect up like a little collection of images in your mind and they're just nice to draw and paint. And I uh, wrestle with it a bit. It's a challenge. It's um, but a happy challenge uh, that I really like. Do you take photos as well or you, you focus more on painting? These days I take less and less photos. I just take them for the sake of a painting to try and remember something so I don't forget them. But coming back to your time in the bush and to your experience, so, you know, we talked about the primary school and those first that first engagement with, with the Alps. How did that develop into what, what appears to be a really long and really full adventurous life that you've led? Yeah, well, the, the next time, it was a bit of an interval from there. It wasn't until towards the end of high school that we had a, a, another skiing event where a group of us from high school and we'd finished um, the following winter. We, we went up to Falls Creek this time and um, we were staying in a, a lodge there and downhill skiing during the day. And, and it just so happened that by pure coincidence, one of our teachers from high school, he ended up staying in the same lodge we were at. Then I noticed one morning he was heading off with his really strange looking skinny skis and I started to ask him, you know, what have you got there? And he said, um, they're cross-country skis, Norwegian cross-country skis or something, Swedish skis or something that he had. And I explained how it worked and told me that you stick different waxes on the bottom and you can climb up hills with them. And I was fascinated by this. And I said, I you know, I wonder if you can hire them. Yeah, I'd love to come out with you. But um, one shop had a handful of cross-country skis, and I got lucky. So we, we headed off from Falls Creek. We went up across Rocky Valley Dam, which is sort of just outside of the resort area, and, and up a spur called Heathy Spur, and up towards Mount Nels, which is, uh, I think, the third highest mountain in Victoria. It was a beautiful, pristine day, not a breath of wind blue skies you can see the snowy mountains way off in the distance and um uh it was just magical and quiet and no crowds and that was that was the last time i ever went downhill skiing i took up cross-country skiing and really got into bushwalking in a, in a big way after that mainly to look at where you could go skiing during the winter months it's sounding like you're hooked on on this alpine environment for victorian and the australian alps wasn't just in Australia. You've you've had off track and quite interesting expedition type experience. Not just in Australia, is that correct? Yeah, in the oh, what would it be in the eighties, we spent a bit of time travelling through Nepal and India uh, from in nineteen. I think it was nineteen eighty four. That would have been a six month trip, which was um, self guided. Me and my partner headed off to Nepal, and we. Um, we're told oh, we, we, need, we should get a guide to take us around the Annapurnas and um, we, we managed to find a, a guide and, and his friend who was going to be a porter <laughs> carry gear for us and we, we did went around the Annapurna circuit which was a really nice trip. But we had a lovely time, the four of us. We sort of shared our kind of um, planning and leading experiences with them. And actually, probably by the end of the trip, I reckon they were pretty good guides. So Back in the 80s, that would have been so different too, like in, when I think of today. 1987, we went back to the Everest region and um, couldn't believe how much you know, the population was really squeezing and um, 
a lot more cars and mm. yeah, it was a very, very different place. So the, yeah, the world changes quickly. Mm. To fill in a bit of background there, from that those first early experiences in the Alps, you've also then had years and years of experience in, in the mountains and bushwalking. Can you just tell me a little bit about, just broadly about that? Yeah, yeah. Look, um, I think bushwalking's always been the anchor. Um, even though cross-country skiing was probably what really sowed the seed for me, but I really, I like the simplicity of bushwalking. It's really minimalist and you can you know, really scale it back. You don't have to take a lot of gear. You just take what, what you need to take to be safe and be self-reliant. I think that's what people really need to understand with bushwalking, to be be safe and be self-reliant and uh, you can have a wonderful time. There's, there's no, no doubt about it. Wait, tell me when you first became aware of what's now called the AAWT or the Australian Alps Walking Track and and, and tell me what that is. To explain to people what, what the AAWT is. It starts in Walhalla. Yeah, it's quite low. It's right down near the Thompson River in a small old gold mining town. That's, that's Walhalla is the, the gold mining town. And it follows the oh, these old railway lines with, that, that where they used to bring timber and um, things like that to make mine mine shafts and things like that. Lots of little networks of sort of um, benched train tracks running across the hillside. So it follows those along to the Thompson River. You eventually cross the Thompson River and you start climbing up through Mountain Ash towards Mount Borbore, which is a alp, sort of subalpine uh, plateau, a very beautiful plateau because um, it hasn't been burnt since the 1939 fires. So it's... It's a wonderful, very pretty subalpine environment that runs for about 20 k's from one end to the other. Yeah, so it's a, a nice introduction to the Alps is when you walk across the Borbore Plateau. And so from that time, the, the, the AAWT has sort of now become longer and bigger than that. Yes, that's right. Now, the, now it's called the Australian Alps Walking Track. It pretty much follows much the same route as the original Victorian part of it, except before you start to head up to Tom Grogan, you end up um, starting to head more northeast from the Benambra Corion Road, and it takes you across towards the Cobras and up um, into New South Wales. You go past the Pilot and you come up near Threadbow at a place called Dead Horse Gap, and you, you start to climb up onto the main range from there, the Snowy Mountains main range. Mm. Now the full length of the AAWT, how, how long is that? It's about 660 kilometres from Walhalla to Tharwa in the ACT. Amazing. And how long does that normally take people to do? I think the quickest time that it's been done was just under 11 days from start to finish. Oh, my goodness. So the, 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 these two people. And the interesting thing is they tried it twice. The first time they tried to run it and they fell apart physically. The second time they attempted it, I think they, they worked out how how long could they walk each day. And I think they worked out they could walk about 18 hours a day and they would have about six hours rest, a couple oh. of hours in the middle of it and four hours at the end of it, then get up and off they'd go again. And so tell me about when you decided to to give it a red-hot go and, and what was happening at the time for you? Yeah, well, look, just before COVID, I started to come up with an I thought to myself, I should should try and do the section, the new sections that I hadn't done, so the, the sections into New South Wales and into the ACT. And I started planning that, and um, then there were the 2019-2020 bushfire season, so that sort of 
put a stop to that. And then just as the tracks were starting to be opened up again, um, along came COVID and that sort of shut, shut me down again for a couple more years. And I eventually got to have a go at it in 2022. And um, it all went beautifully well until, until I ran into troubles on the long spur coming off Mount Bogon. Massive thanks for the support from the team at Paddy Pallon, who since 1930 have been leaders in travel and outdoor adventure. In fact, did you know that Paddy himself, a member of the Sydney Bushwalkers Club, was a volunteer in the original search and rescue arm of the Federation of Bushwalking Clubs in New South Wales? Hmm, nice one, Paddy. Let's wind it back and talk about your preparation. Uh, preparation was very detailed because I had lots of time over COVID. I I've got this amazing spreadsheet of about 10 different tabs from everything from distances to to food to where I'm going to put food drops in to, you know, how much my pack would weigh on just about any sort of section of the track after picking up food drops. So it was a lot of plenty of time to do this amazing detailed plan on on, on how I was going to pull, pull this all together. And what about preparing your body? Had you kept your fitness up during COVID? Yeah, yeah. I always um, another thing I do. Uh, I do a lot of running. Uh, that's another sort of uh, passion of mine is sort of running half marathons and occasionally a marathon. But um, that, that all came about from bushwalking. I was like an efficient way to keep fit for walking was to go running during the week. So yeah, I've always sort of kept up my running as well as my walking. So yeah, I was pretty fit. Always feels a bit different the first couple of days, but after you know three or four days, you feet really settle into your boots you yeah you feel great that's good <laughs> okay so 20 27 days in were you uh, no about about 21 days i think it was 21 on the day that i where things went a bit pear-shaped mm. yeah so tell me what happened well about 24 hours before i was going across the bogon just finishing the section across the bogon high plains and going up over mount nelson down towards roper's hut which is on the northern end of the bogon high plains and i was yeah, I camped at Roper's Hut and then the next day I headed off towards Mount Bogon and the weather was changing. Um, it became a really toxic night up on Mount Bogon on near Cleve Cole Hut. was roaring sort of front coming through and uh, my poor little tent held up but I looked out the door a couple of times. You could see the tent pegs wobbling around as it's coming off. Which if, this, if any, one of them comes out, I'll end up back where I started. And um, But it held out. I think I got about one or two hours sleep and the next morning I got up and uh, had a look around and thought, gee, what should I do? Should I just sit out the weather at Cleve Coal Hut for another 24 hours or should I plug on to Mount Wills, which was my next food drop? And there was also a hut there and I thought, well, I'm going to start descending to a lower sort of altitude from here on. It'll get lower till I get up, up onto Mount Wills. And so I chose to plug on towards Mount Wills and um, – so I put on all my wet weather gear and it was quite comfortable and warm and packed up wet tent and got underway. And that all was going okay. I was plodding along for about an hour, an hour and a half or so up over down Camp Valley, then up over a hill called Bosea Hill. Then I hit the um, the long spur, which was nicely cleared a week before the volunteer group from Bushwalking Victoria called Bush and Track Conservation Group had cleared the long spur, which was... Although that was wonderful, and um, how good are the volunteers? Hey, yeah, they are. They're the one. I'm a, actually a member of that group, so I'm quite involved with them. I knew they were going to clear that track, 
which was I was looking forward to it. And I was probably about a half an hour along the long spur, and I felt a bit of a twinge in my right lower back, and thought, oh, probably just something from a um, bad night's sleep, you know, uncomfortable cold mm-hmm. and what have you. But within about half an hour, it changed to an excruciating pain in my kidney, right kidney area. There were just like waves of you know, hot and cold fever rushing through my body. Mm-hmm. The pain was like horrendous. I was just shaking and vomiting and um, yeah. really in a, to, to rapidly into a shocking state. And um, really, at first, wasn't sure what to do. It just took a while to, to think about, you know, do I turn back or do I go ahead? And um, I, I figured to go back was just walking back into freezing cold, windy weather. And um, I thought it was probably going to be easier going downhill on the on the clear track. And um, uh, luckily, I'd been part of my planning. I'd gone to see my GP and I'd, he'd prescribed some um, fairly heavy duty painkillers mm. for me in the event that I might you know, twist my ankle or break a, an arm or something like that. So I had some fairly heavy dose. Um, pain relief and um, to be upfront on it I had had kidney stones about 30 years before and uh, I spoke to the GP about this and um, he said well if you haven't had them for so long and you're really well and truly past that sort of age group where where males tend to get them they tend to get them around the mid-30s to mid-50s and then Mm. they're not so common after that sort of age sort of bracket so you can't spend your life wrapped up in cotton wool and I thought well I'm just going to keep push walking on this. So true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there anything you can do for kidney stones? Like is there any sort of first aid treatment you can give? Not really. Pain relief is all they can really do. Initially, when I got them 30 years ago, they did some tests and back then they had ideas that you could have modify your diet and they took certain things out of my diet and I've been fairly religious about those, not to things like certain greens like asparagus, um, spinach, um, fermented dairy products, oily fish, things like that. So I've been following that, but when I spoke to the GP on coming back, he said, well, you, you probably didn't need to. He said, oh, that's sort of been debunked now and you can, it's, it's mainly just about hydration is the, the, most, the best preventative thing is just, just it's not so much diet, it's more about just keeping up your, your hydration in your daily life. Because the thing that strikes me and what is unique about something like kidney stones or I guess it's anything medical that happens in the bush. Like if, if you've got, if you have an injury, like you, you twist your ankle, you, like you're saying, or, or you break your arm, something like that, like you can see what's wrong and you can apply first aid if you know how to do yeah, that. But, yeah. but when there's something happening internally, there's something happening medically with you, you know, we're pretty complex beings. There's a lot yeah. that could go wrong. Like there's so little that we can actually do about it. Yeah, that's right. So that's the risk element, I suppose, and you just need to prepare as best as you can. Some people have said, oh, maybe you shouldn't walk on, on your own, but I I do a bit of a mix of walking with clubs and with um, solo walking, and I don't think that the outcome wouldn't have been any different. I was able to manage the situation, and the same scenario would have happened if there was somebody with me. They would have at some point had to set off a PLB, and um, which I could do anyhow. So, but there, you know, it could have been a lot worse, I suppose. But that's the risk, I suppose. Hmm. It is. And I guess it's just about, you know, knowing what those risks are, knowing what your own personal risk tolerance is, mm-hmm. and then how you how you mitigate, how you lower 
lower mm. risks where possible. Mm. So, so take me back to you'd taken the painkillers. I think that's where we got to. What what happened next? Yeah, I was probably a couple of hours into the into the day. I took the painkiller, um, and that was amazing. Wow, it just knocked the edge off it straight away. I thought, wow, this is pretty good. <laughs> and <laughs> and I thought, well, what I should do because it's it's not going to last forever. This painkiller and this this is going to come back and bite me again. So at that point, I made I really made a decision. I should try and get off the foot track and get down to at least the four wheel drive track, which um, was a few kilometres on, and even better still to get to Big River Saddle because if I can get there, it's a clear area and I can put up a tent and shelter and really work out what to do. So that was my decision to to plug on. I went on and. Um, about an hour later, sure enough, the painkiller started to wear off and the pain came back like a hammer. Just mm. same thing again, just the waves of pain, the hot and cold sort of sweats, the mm. vomiting coming back, the, the whole works was just full on. I thought, well, gee, I've only been an hour since I took, you're only meant to take four of thing, these things a day. I shouldn't mm. be taking another one an hour later. So... I thought I'm just going to have to put up with it, and I plugged on. And oh, gee, at times was that utter madness. Like I was really, like, angry. I was angry with myself that I was in this situation, and um, I was taking off my pack and swearing and kicking branches, and just really not in a good space at all. Yeah. And I plugged on for another hour, and eventually got got onto the four wheel drive track, which was a relief and. I just sort of collapsed there on yeah, the side wow. of the track when I got to the got there, and I um, it was just still really toxic weather. It was sleet blowing through and wind, and I thought, well, I'm going to take another painkiller now. At least I'm on the four wheel drive track. Thing. I still really wanted to try, and I had it somewhere in my mind that I needed to get to Big River Saddle. I probably could have set off the PLB there, but I just couldn't shelter. There it was steep and wet and just messy, sort of. I couldn't. No, I could have wrapped the tent around me or something, but I just didn't know. I had doubts about the PLB. I'd never. It was a Garmin inReach. It's a US product. They don't. It's not sort of networked to the Australian Emergency Rescue Service, which has a base in Canberra. And I started. I don't know if it was the pain kills or the pain, but I started having all these wacky ideas that you know what happens if no, I set it off and the message goes to a base in Texas, and then they start to to monitor. It there and work out what to do and I thought you know what happens if it doesn't work or they uh, um, you know go home at five o'clock or something like yeah. that <laughs> um, you know, the time difference and things I just crazy sort of thoughts but but I thought no I'll keep going to Big River Saddle it's a bit close to the Omeo Mitter Highway if, if nothing if I, if I wasn't able to be rescued there perhaps I could you know perhaps get keep going and get get through to the road um, yeah and how how fast do you reckon you were able to walk at this time like in such pain and with so much going on not very fast yeah like two k's an hour tops kind of thing uh, look when it came to it to like if there was a slight undulating rise in the jeep track or something i could it was just just so weak you know yeah. it could take me it might be from here to the front gate or something it'd be a little bit of a rise in it i could barely get up but you know it sort of just felt just shot, absolutely shattered, mm. yeah. But I eventually got to Big River Saddle and I put up my tent and um, I don't know, it was just 
felt, I think once I got to the four-wheel drive track, I somehow got a bit of a lift mentally and thought I can get to be River Saddle. And I got there and I put my tent up as best as I could, as quickly as it was, and it's pretty, kept the rain off me, I'd say that's about, about all. Um, and got inside and I tried to change my clothes. Then I just noticed when I was trying to take my clothes off to put on uh, the thermals, dry, dry clothes and things, that mm. my body was just like, I couldn't undo buttons or drag on thermals. I was just like a shaking mess, absolutely <laughs> really weak and just shaking. And I, so I just got my sleeping bag out and wrapped that around me. And um, then I started to, I thought, now, I'm, now I've got shelter, I've got warmth around me, I'll start to fiddle around with the, with the Garmin. And I you know, turned that on and it all got uncovered the bit. It's got an SOS button and I pushed it and and just waited to see what would happen. Mm. Now, eventually, immediately, I got a message back asking me to confirm it was a, an emergency situation. What I'd forgotten to realise, even though I was pretty well prepared, I'd studied up on this SOS thing well before the before I set up on the trail and I charged up the, the device again at Mount Hotham where I'd had a rest day, so I was able to charge it up. So it had plenty of charge. It was 100% charge on it. Um, but what I did forget, it has a whole lot of little preset messages where you can just arrow to a yes or a no, and, but I'd forgotten that it had those and I was, it's got this really clunky sort of arrow texting type thing mm-hmm. that you've got to answer and my hands are shaking and I'm trying to answer with all these questions they're asking whether you've got food, whether you've got shelter, are you alone? So I'm trying to type yes, no <laughs> to oh. all these these questions and I eventually eventually seemed to answer them all and they sent back. Oh, they also tried to ring me on my mobile phone. So I, I turned that on as well and could see there was no no mobile reception. But it actually rang. I tried to answer, but they I could see it was a US number because of the plus one or something, but couldn't couldn't speak to them there wasn't enough mobile reception to be able to talk so was really back to the Garmin to, to use that and they sent a message saying they'd notified Australian Emergency Services of my situation that it was a medical condition that of my location the coordinates and all that from the from the GPS and that a, a rescue was underway um, and how did that how did you feel at that point oh gee I felt Felt fantastic, and then I thought, I wonder how long it will take. <laughs> I felt, you know, I was just glad that all that had worked. I didn't feel fantastic physically or you know, mm. pain-wise. I was pretty bad, but I was just relieved that there was communication. And I thought, all I got to do now is just sit it out. And um, then I don't know whether what I think I might have gone unconscious for a while because um, you know, the next thing I remember was. My tent was shaking. There was a voice outside calling as Owen Morris in there. Then I called out, yes, yeah, yeah, I'm here, I'm here. And um, and the tent unzipped and I could see these two faces, these beamings, <laughs> these big smiling faces mm-hmm. looking at me from the from the tent door. And I'll tell you what, I've never been so happy to see two people. And they were just absolute gems, just lovely, wonderful, clever people that, that had two paramedic ambulance people, or actually four, or another ambulance turned up a few moments later, but initially two people. And and how long had that taken? It taken only two and a half hours from the moment I pushed the button to when they arrived. Wow. I thought it was even shorter. Like I said, I thought, wow, these people just appeared from nowhere, <laughs> but it had been, been two and a half hours. Um, yeah, so I must have fallen asleep or gone unconscious for a bit or something, but there, I was still 
very painful when 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 they opened the tent door, and um, I, my first reaction was to try and just get to my feet, and they said, no, 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 they just don't move, don't move, and they, they just kept me lying in my tent, and then eventually he said, look, we're going to move you to the ambulance now, and they slid me out onto a stretcher and put me in the back of this four-wheel drive, then decided they wanted to, uh, they were, they were licensed to administer some pain relief, and um, they wanted to put a drip in, and um, pain relief through the drip. And they had trouble finding a vein. The ambulance guys poking around, up and down my arm, my hands, and back of my wrist. And but I think that wasn't my body wasn't in very good condition. And he apologised for treating me like a pin cushion. But no. eventually, eventually found a spot and got it in and got some pain relief onto me. And off we went. We went to AMO Hospital there. And I think I must have fallen asleep from the morphine going round because I don't remember much other than being woken up at Omeo. There were two nurses on duty there. And now they, they did a wonderful job like that. They, they had to work out what to do with me. Their first little discussion, they should send me on to Bansdale. But they um, uh, spoke to a doctor at Bansdale Base Hospital and he thought it was best to, to keep me there for the time being and just get the pain relief in better better state than than, than what it was. Hmm. And 2 a.m. in the morning, another nurse, um, the night duty nurse, woke me up and said, oh, you're going on another ambulance ride to Bansdale because she wasn't happy with the, the heart, wasn't behaving very well, was getting weaker. And right. um, so back into another ambulance and off to Bansdale. Yeah. So how far is, is um, Omeo from Bansdale? I think it's a good two to three hour drive, yeah. And that first journey from where your tent, where you, where you got picked up, how's, how long's the journey from there to Omeo? I think that was only a bit over an hour because I remember just before I went to sleep, the, the, the ambulance guy said to me, look, we've got a choice here. Uh, he's such a character. I remember this bit. He said, "Look, we can take this. You can we can take the short and bumpy route, or we can take the windy long route." So one one route was along a sealed windy road, which take takes a lot longer to get to Omeo. Or he said, "We can take you down the knocker, whatever the knocker is. It's a track that runs between near Mount Wills and it runs down towards Penambra." And I said, "Ah." Oh, Take me down the knocker. I've never been down the knocker, so I'll be happy to go down that. <laughs> and off we went. And so yeah, I think it was maybe about an hour, a bit shorter than taking the long windy road on the bitumen road. Didn't knock me around too much. Yeah, yeah, knock it to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. And then in the morning they did MRI scans and all sorts of blood tests and all sorts of things in the morning at Bansdale. By 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the doc said, we're happy. We, we think the kidney stone has passed for your urinary tract, and you're you're free to go. And um, he you know, just asked me. He said, "Look, I don't want you to go back onto the hiking trail. You can go home." At that stage, I said, um, "I rang my brother Peter, who'd been sort of watching. I'd been my sort of emergency contact point back at home. He was aware of where I was, and um, he offered to come and pick me up. I said, "Well, gee, if you drive from Melbourne to Bansdale, you're going to be another four or five hours." And, so we gave up on that idea, even though we insisted. I, I just took the train home in the end. <laughs> and uh, just I asked the lady at the desk at the hospital, I said, how often does the train run to Melbourne? She said, oh, it goes about every hour, I think. And uh, so I found out there was a train in about a 
30 minutes time and I just took the train home and within four hours I think I was at Richmond Station in Melbourne and my younger son came down there and carried my pack home from we took the train out to Camberwell and he carried my pack home for me Uh, so it was a happy ending to get home yeah yeah but I was very weak for a long time I think for the next week I, I slept and had nightmares about the whole thing I had kept recurring nightmares about being on the long spur and things mm. just kicking my pack and all sorts of horrible things. And how long did it take for those nightmares to subside? Uh, maybe a couple of weeks, I reckon. I was a bit, sort of, a bit ratty for a couple of weeks from sleep. I'd get up and just go and watch TV at 2am in the morning and then go back to bed and just, yeah, just really restless sort of anxious time. Does that surprise you given, you know, your years and years of experience in in wild places? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't didn't expect the aftermath at all to be like that. I thought, you know, you get over kidney stones and get on with life, you know, but it didn't feel like that for a while. And how how do you feel about that now? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, I reckon the thing that put closure to it for me was um, a person from Bushwalking Victoria, you know, I told the story. I hadn't told many people about it, but I told told them what had happened. They were they intrigued by it. They said, look, you know, I said it's really difficult to talk about. And she said, well, why don't you write write about it, try writing about it, and um, it'd be a really good article for Bushwalking Victoria's newsletter because they people often wonder, you know, when is the right time to set off a PLB, you know, and should I set off a PLB? That's the other question. So people are quite sure what a PLB is. It's a personal location beacon. It's a um, satellite rescue device where it, uh, you can set it off and it will take a record of your um, geographic location um, and uh, notify an emergency services group for the Australian ones. It's in Canberra for my Garmin one, which is US one, as I mentioned, was in Texas, USA. Mm. Yeah, so that's really important. I think you know, it's one of the, you know, we like to keep bushwalking simple, but I think if you're going to do solo adventures, I think it's it's a really it's a really reassuring thing to have as a PLV device. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll definitely link to your story in the show notes so people can read about about oh, your yeah. experience and also about about PLB activation because yeah, there's two, there's those two different types. There's the, the PLB itself, that personal locator beacon, and then these other sort of third party satellite communications devices like like mm. the Inreach, like the Zolio, like um, oh, there's a few other other ones, spot trackers as well. That's right. Yeah, so they're ones. Some of them you can you know communicate by text message on, which is yeah probably a useful little extra. Do you have a personal story about an incident or rescue during an outdoor trip when something didn't quite go to plan? Maybe you got lost, injured, let down by some gear, preparation or something else. Look, honestly, it can happen to any of us at any time, regardless of how experienced we are. And it's by sharing these stories and tales that we can all learn and help to avoid them in the future. So if that's you, I'd love to hear from you. So please drop me an email to rescued at lotsoffreshair.com. That's rescued with a D. It was interesting um, when you said that you turned on the device and you'd recharged it because things like those devices, they've also got like GPSs and tracking in them as well. Yeah. And mapping. Yeah. Um, but you weren't using that for, for this trip? No, I 
put a lot of work into it. I did like a little test run up north of Mount Borbor where we plotted a route along the Alpine walking track and loaded that on. So you do that on your desktop computer and you can you know, pull up the map on the, on the Garmin um, software and you, like, you just put in, plot out the route along the Alpine walking track where it goes. And the only thing I don't like about these, for this, you're looking at this little screen all the time and you're, you're following somebody, you know, like create this sort of line or you download somebody else's route and you follow their line. but. I don't know. I quite like I quite like the old map and compass. It's something I'm very comfortable with. I had a lot of training with it through a course I did through the Department of Sport and Recreation many years earlier, and and I've always walked that way. And um, so I, I, I didn't need to use that. I was able to just use map and compass. At times, the AAWT is is not a clear path. It's purely a route. It's overgrown, and you really need to know how to navigate. Be able to get along that's really really important in some parts the poor old volunteer track clearers can't can't keep up with it all and the land managers seem to be struggling too whether it's funding or time or resources whatever but a lot of it's it's not a pristine track like some international tracks are it's a it's a a really tough route but a very interesting route all the same thank you for for answering what what probably could be a question in many people's heads if they're just hearing about this track for the first time because i think in australia we think about you know those long distance tracks you know we've got um the the heisen trail in south australia there's the bibbleman in in wa but um but the aawt is quite different in terms of just how much of a track it is versus a, a route, as you described. Yeah, it's like it's, yeah. it's an idea that is on a on a map that doesn't necessarily translate to the ground. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, you've got to um, approach it with a, a bit of a common sense approach at time. You've got to think, well, if this was me, where would I put the track? <laughs> so usually it follows ridge tops and things like that. So as long as you keep you know, keep those sort of ideas that if, if you can't find the, the, the actual track, if it's kind of disappeared or you you feel like you're getting off it, just always think that, you know, it's probably going to follow a ridge line and just get back up onto the ridge that you, you might have sort of wandered off and try and sort yourself out there. And I used to every every night before I'd go to sleep, I'd look at the map for the next day. I'd sort of plot out any sort of compass bearings that I think might be tricky bits, sort of, Know, prepare myself a little bit in advance so the next day I didn't have to fiddle around too much with the, the map. I had, yeah, it all went pretty smoothly. It's a nice way to walk just with map and compass and you don't need to worry about charging your devices. Like when I got to Mount Hotham, I'd had the, the PLB being turned off and I had two days rest there and I played around with it a bit. And when I got there, I turned it on, it was 100%. And somehow I didn't turn it off properly and I just thought I'd just check it again before I'd leave Mount Hotham and I noticed it was down to about 40%. So somehow I didn't turn it off properly and I that delayed my sort of departure from Mount Hotham. I waited for it to charge up to 100% again, a couple of hours it took to charge up and then and off I went. So last couple of questions for you. One is, the first is, uh, what would be your advice to people who were thinking of undertaking the AAWT? given that, you know, you've had so much experience on it? Don't bite off more than you can chew. Just don't come up with an idea. If you haven't done a lot of walking, don't don't be in a hurry. Eh? 
go out and just enjoy walking, do some little sections of it, maybe two or three days at a time, get a feel for what it's about, the scale of it, the time of it. A lot of practical sort of preparation is really, really helpful. And again, at home, you can really plan it to detail these days with Excel spreadsheets and weighing your gear and weighing your food and plotting how many metres up and how many metres down and even working out walking times is, is formulas for calculating your walking times and things like that and given the terrain and, and what have you. So, yeah, just take your time and don't, don't, be, don't be too ambitious. Just go out on the trail and plan well and enjoy it as much as you can. Just don't be in too much of a hurry. Be flexible. You'll get some toxic weather somewhere. Or you might have a medical incident too, which might sort of um, curtail things for a while too. So just take your time and plan well. So speaking of curtailing things for a while, do you have plans to go back and pick up where you left off? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just starting to toy with those ideas, but I probably won't do it in one big continuous section. I'll just break it down into maybe five days max at a time, something like that, and do it over three or four sections. And this particular painting was was a bit of a story too. The idea for that came up on um, just on the train home. I had this sort of wacky idea of of doing a painting. I don't often paint with a character in my paintings, but this time I did. So (laughs) you've seen the picture, but it's a pretty crazy painting, but it's also one of my stronger paintings. help but I sort of did that at the same time I was writing. I really loved the painting Owen. It's amazing. Well Owen thank you again so much. It's been so great to hear your story and to hear someone with your amount of experience but also talking through that thing you can't plan for and you can't you know really treat in any other way which is having a medical emergency in the bush and also that experience with with operating a um, an inreach, a PLB like device, and having such a great outcome. And thank you too. I think this is part of it too. Your your podcast is a, a nice little part of it as well. So no, thanks for interviewing me. Oh, look, you know, the the whole aim is to by sharing stories, we all learn. You know, we all learn about how we can make our experiences better. We can learn about things we maybe hadn't thought about mm. when it comes to spending time in the bush hearing about someone who's actually pushed the SOS button mm-hmm. and how long that took and, and that process, um, it's it's all great learnings. And also just I loved your detail of the, the spreadsheets and your preparation just by preparing, you know, making sure you had good gear with you, you took really wise choices, you know, getting getting out of the, the toxic weather, as you called it, getting down into, into the, the saddle to mm-hmm. set up your tent. Just really well thought out. Yeah, it's pretty amazing under such trying conditions. Usually my mind's a fairly <laughs> messy space, but and particularly that day, but somehow I managed to string it together. I don't know how, but it was a good outcome. Yeah, yeah great outcome. Well, look, I'll link to your story in the show notes yeah. for, for, the, for the podcast as well. And thank you again. All the best, and I cannot wait until I hear the end of your Australian Alps walking track experience. The Rescued podcast is produced on the unceded lands of the Gundungurra and Darug people of the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. 
I pay my respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge their enduring connection to and care for country. Special thanks to our sponsors, Paddy Pallon. This has been a Lots of Fresh Air production.